0: Good morning, church, again. My name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here and the worship pastor. Um, This morning, we will be looking at one of, if not the darkest moments in David's life, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. David and Bathsheba. No doubt this is a very familiar passage to those who have been raised in the church and you may have heard your more than a handful share of sermons on this tragic period in Israel's history. But I pray that we will all have an open mind to hear from God this morning because scripture is living and breathing because it is inspired by the living God and so it continues to speak to us about him. I'm going to give you a little quick warning. There's a lot of ground to cover here. Um, I'm going to have a lot of Scripture passages thrown up there, but if you complain about too many Scripture passages, we should just probably just have a one-on-one discipleship <laughs> meeting. Um, and then also, fair warning, I am a worship pastor, and so there's going to be a lot of hymn references, so maybe that could be a way to keep you engaged. Count. Go ahead and like try to count throughout the sermon how many hymn references you find. Um, I, just, I think in hymns in Scripture, and so... Um, It's just going to kind of, it just came out naturally, I was was writing this. But I want to say, this is easily the toughest sermon that I have preached on. I have wrestled very hard with this text and spent many hours studying the scripture itself on top of the stack of commentaries and the endless tabs opened up in my laptop web browser. There's a lot that I could say. And I would love to take a lot of different deep dives into the different nuances that are found in this text. But at the end of the day, this chapter, this sermon, it is simple. Sin has broken us and our world beyond imagination, but yet God's grace is greater than anything and can redeem anything. Nothing is beyond the scope of God's love, his redemptive work. Amen? This story is a story of adultery, abuse, and murder. And instead, it is flipped on its head because God makes broken things beautiful. In this story, we see the depths of humanity's depravity in David, and then in turn see the overwhelming depths of God's grace. So first, let's dive into the text. Let's read 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, "'And one said, "'Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, "'the wife of Uriah the Hittite?' "'So David sent messengers and took her. "'And she came to him, and he lay with her. "'Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. "'Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, "'and she sent and told David, "'I am pregnant.' "'So David sent word to Joab, "'Send me Uriah the Hittite.' "'And Joab sent Uriah to David.' When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping within the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, "'When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, "'then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, "'Why did you go so near to the city to fight?' Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone up on him from the walls so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Wow, this is a hard passage to read. Have you ever held someone at a very high pedestal only to watch that pedestal tragically just crumble to pieces? We've been spending over two months studying David, the champion that God had chosen to be the great king of Israel. And he has stood as the face of righteousness in the face of injustice and unrighteousness over and over. He has been our example. And yet here he is, our champion now championing a downward spiral of sin that pulled everyone else around him into it that led to betrayal and death. Where did it go wrong? Let's start in verse 1, ground zero. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Spring, it was prime battle time. At that time, that's when the roads were the most clear. The rainy season in that area of the world was was over and it was dry. It was prime time for people to go to battle. And it was the harvest was aplenty so you could, as your soldiers, could go through their enemies' fields and take their food. This was the time to fight. David remained in Jerusalem. And what did he do instead? He sent Joab. If you notice when we read this passage, there was a lot of the use of the word sent, right? David was the one who was doing most of that sending because he is culpable. He is the one behind this. And the point of that, and I want to, why I wanted to point that out, is that we are culpable for our sins. Yes, God is sovereign, but he is not the author of sin. We do that. We are culpable for our sin. So David remained in Jerusalem. He was not out at the time of when kings go to war in the prime time for battle. He remained in Jerusalem. He was not where he was supposed to be. This is what gets us into trouble, being where we are not supposed to be. This is how sin gains a foothold and then begins to snowball, which is something so small. He was neglecting his duty. And what did that lead to? Adultery. But not just adultery. This was abuse. There's no skirting around it. I will not shirk what awfulness this was. It is abuse. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Again, David was not where he was supposed to be. If he had been out at war, he would not have been on that rooftop. But because he was remaining in Jerusalem, he took a nap, and it was hot, so he then stepped out onto his roof. And as he walked out there, he saw a beautiful, very beautiful, as it says in the text, very beautiful woman outside bathing. It's important to note that she was doing what was normal. She was not out there trying to seduce anybody. It was hot for her too. And it was normal to be bathing on the rooftops. She was going about her daily business. David encroached upon her. And the sin was not that he saw her. If he just saw her and said, oh, that's it. There's no sin. He lingered. And that led to more things. Started small and it is building. David violated her space the moment that he lingered. And in that moment, he committed adultery in his heart, as Jesus would say. They inquired about the woman, and the response was, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So once again, David sent to find out about this woman, and they tell him who she is. This was Bathsheba. Her name is, there's a Hebrew play on words here with her name. It is two different Hebrew words that make a compound word to be her name. Bat and Sheba, daughter of the oath. It is just dripping in irony. Is this not the daughter of the oath? Eliam, that is one of your mighty warriors, David. One of your 30. And the wife of Uriah, one of the God worshiping Hittites that has joined, and he is, as you see in the text, fulfilling his oath over and over and over. She is a daughter of the oath. What does David do with that oath? He tramples it. And so then David sent, once again, sent messengers and took her, and then he laid with her, and she became pregnant. Once again, David is sending Bathsheba was taken. He is culpable for all of the actions here, his string of sin, where it started so small and it just keeps going and building and building. And again, this was not a lover's tryst. This was not a rom-com um, scandalous love story. This was abuse, full send. This was abuse of power on David's part and this was sexual abuse. Bathsheba had no control or agency in this whole situation. It's hard for us to understand the dynamic of play at here because we do not have a king. If she were to refuse, she would be dead. She had no choice in the matter. There are, and I want to speak carefully on this. This is why it's been so tough this week trying to wrestle with this text. We also, we can have a glimpse of what this is like if you tragically know someone who has been in an abusive relationship that person has no power they've been robbed of their power this is akin to that and we should call that for what it is and it is depraved amen it started just so small though but at this point she becomes pregnant and now there's a paper trail now david oh no He has to do something with this. David already has many, many wives at this point. With all of Saul's harem are now his. Like we like to, you know, give Solomon a bad time. He had the most wives and concubines in the history of the world, most likely. Um, And he rightfully should be giving him a hard time about that. But David was just, you know, behind him on that. Um, And yet he still wanted more, still wanted more. But now he's got that paper trail. What's he going to do with it? He now becomes the attempted cover-up and the murder, or should I say murders. It's not just the murder of Uriah, as we'll find out. It is the murder of many other people. But at this point, because David's been found out, he has to do something about it. And why? Because according to God's law, he is deserving of death. He has broken many laws, and all of them point to his death. So he's a dead man in the eyes of the law. What does he do? He brings Uriah back. And he doesn't need this report from Uriah. He has his own people in the army. Their job is to report to him and tell him what the morale is and what's going on and the updates of different battles. But he sends Uriah back. That should have been a little bit fishy for Uriah. But he just stayed faithful to David, which is all the more tragic. He stayed faithful. He... Was sent, tried to be sent home to wash his feet. It's a Hebrew idiom that I will go into. Um, context clues, guys. And he refused to do that. He stayed faithful to his oath that the other soldiers also made that they will stay celibate during the time of war. And then David even tries to get him drunk and remove his inhibition. That doesn't work either. He remained faithful to his oath. And then just dripping in irony and tragedy once again, Uriah is sent to go back to battle, carrying his own death notice, his death order in hand unknowingly. Just awful. And he goes out there. And then why would they even attack in the first place? Rabbah is sieged, right? What do you do when you've a city? You wait it out. They're going to starve. They're going to do something stupid and come out to try to get food and send messengers There's going to be ways to get in. You let them make the move. You wait. What happens? They send their men to kill Uriah to the strongest point of the city so that way he could die. And they're willing to sacrifice other good soldiers in the process. These are not just bad orders. This is just depravity. Just depravity. So at this point, David is just an utter failure. He's a failure of a leader to his army, to the men who died on his behalf for his cover-up. He's a failure of a leader to the people of Israel, God's chosen people to be a light to all the nations. David is a failure to his, his own family, his already many wives and children. David is a failure to Bathsheba. He is a failure to Uriah. He is a failure to Eliam. At this point, David is a liar, a conspirator, an adulterer, abuser, and a murderer. He deserves death according to the law, or at least to have everything stripped away from him and given to someone else, like what happened to Saul before him. But God. Two most important words in the Bible, but God. And here's the point of this story. This is why we study it. This is why it's still speaking to us today, because it's the point of everything, the gospel. But God, God made a covenant with David, and God does not go back on his word. God's perfect will cannot be thwarted by humankind's sins or plans. And there is nothing that God cannot redeem. This is the beginning of the good news. It starts with God, and then it reaches David, and his response is what ours is to be, and that is repentance. Let's read together Psalm 51. This is David's response when the prophet Nathan brings before him and confronts him with his sin. We're going to read 1 through 17, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. deliver me from blood guiltiness o god o god of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness o lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or i would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart o god you will not despise this is why god is still a man after god's own heart When faced with his sin, he responds with humility and grieves over his sin and is truly repentant. This psalm is deserving of a sermon on its own, but I do want to point out a few things of what true repentance looks like. Why David is the man after God's own heart and how we follow in his steps because we are called to be a people after God's own heart. So the first step is grieve. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. True repentance recognizes the weight of sin, and this leads to grief over sin. The word broken here literally means shattered. Our heart should be shattered over our sin. I think we've all experienced some degree of an utterly shattered heart, and this isn't just saying, oops, my bad, my bad, God. This is a guttural, I am sorry, that requires humility and taking full ownership over sin. This is what David does. He takes ownership of his sin. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't try to explain away or diminish. There is grief. Second, confess. David recognizes and sees himself in his sin for what it is. That original sin is real and ourselves and the whole world is corrupted and stained by sin. Verse 3, 4, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. True repentance requires confession. David sees his sin and he doesn't belittle it or rationalize it. He takes ownership. He confesses. The third thing, after you grieve and you confess, comes absolution and assurance. God's forgiveness through his grace is total and final. Thanks be to God. What was broken is made whole, verse 8 and verse 10. What was dirty is now cleansed, verse 2, verse 7. What was unholy is now holy. What was separated is now inseparable, verse 11. What was grief is now joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh God, we have absolution and assurance of his forgiveness. And this is not an end in and of itself. This leads to the fourth thing, an outward heart. Repentance isn't just that end in and of itself. It leads us outward. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Repentance guides our steps to join God in his redemptive work. It does not keep us still grieve, confess, and then no absolution and assurance, and then an outward heart. So what does all this mean for us today? Where do we go from here? Well, there's two things that we need to remember, the gravity of sin and the gravity of grace. We cannot understand God's immeasurable grace if we do not take sin seriously and understand its own depths. Now, bear with me, this is about to be a lot of scripture, but I will not apologize for this because this is the gospel this is what scripture points to and has to say to us so first the gravity of sin the depths of depravity here and there are three points sorry i'm baptist in my origin you know so three points the depth of sin the downward spiral of sin and the consequence of sin so first the depth of sin psalm 51:3 for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me Psalm fifty-one, five: Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans three, twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3:10 through twelve: None is righteous; no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good; not even one. Original sin is real. Sin has corrupted all of creation every man and woman living thing and all the things that living things have taken part in or created. Sin has infected all. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If you think that you have not sinned or you were sinless apart from the grace of Christ, I want whatever you're drinking. Sin has corrupted all. This is the depth of it. Two, the downward spiral of sin. It started for David with something very small. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Even the small sins, are, when left unchecked, unrepentant, lead to something darker and greater. When we try to rationalize our sin, when we try to cover up our sin, it snowballs. In the time when kings go to war. I have, we have a rabbi in our battalion, and um, I was talking with him about this passage. I just wanted to know his perspective on it. And he gave me a lot that I w- would have liked to have had another whole day to speak on this sermon. But there was one thing he said. He said, you know, in the time when kings go to war, can also be read as a spiritual matter. The time when kings are supposed to go to spiritual war, David is where he wasn't supposed to be. When we face spiritual battles, we need to be armed with righteousness and not be caught lacking. For the Christian, that means we need to be fully adorned with the armor of God, shield and sword in hand. We need to be ready. First Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are always in a time of when kings go to war, and so we need to be steeped in God's word We need to be encased in unceasing prayer and devoted to the body of Christ. The consequence of sin. David's sins led to lasting effects in the real world. It led to the destruction of Uriah's family, the betrayal of David's own family members, and the deaths of Uriah and the unnamed soldiers and four of David's children. The unnamed child that we have that Bathsheba conceived, and then Amnon, Absalom, and... Another A. I've been like, no? I'm gonna leave that up to you guys. It was four, I promise. Sin leads to death. This is the consequence of sin, it destroys everything around us and corrupts everything. For the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Where there is gravity of sin, there is gravity of grace. The weight of his glory is unmatched and undefeated. So let us look now at the depths of grace, the upward spiral of grace, the consequence of grace. The depth of grace is what Christ has done. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin that we could become the righteousness of God. He bore our sin once and for all and was raised to life that we could also have eternal life. All of this is the work of Christ. Christ alone, so that none may boast. And all this is only possible because Jesus is God, the Son. He cannot be with lacking either his fully God or fully human. He has to be both. So that his sacrifice and resurrection are eternally effectual. If he was merely just fully God without being fully man, he could not take on the sin. If he was just fully human and not fully God, it would just be like another sacrifice that we wrote on the goat and sent it out into the wilderness or sacrificed the bull. He instead took on all the sin and died a death that wiped away our sin once and for all. This is the depth of grace. We could do nothing to make this happen. This is what he has done. And what do we do with this depth of grace? Our role is to accept the free gift and believe. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the depth of grace, thanks be to God. The upward spiral of grace is sanctification. We have been saved, but we've been saved with a purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, We're a new creation. Behold, the oldest past, behold, the new has come. The verb tense there, the oldest passed away, is a tense that means it happened once in the past, and it is never coming back. Behold, the new has come is a verb tense that happened once, and it is an unending process. There is not an end in sight. The old you, the sin that was within you, is dead and gone. It is not going anywhere. But the new started at that point, and there is no end. He is constantly making you new. Paul also says in Romans 8, "...for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do." By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have been saved, made new, and we are continually being made new. And now we are called to be a part of God's redeeming work. For all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is the upward spiral of grace, that we are made new, continually being made new, sanctified for our holiness, and to join God in his redeeming work and ultimately be glorified the consequence of grace. The consequences of grace are that sin cannot thwart God's perfect will and God can redeem anything. If you turn to the first chapter of the first gospel, Matthew chapter 1, and verse 6, we see the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 6 says, And Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice that God's word gives due honor to Uriah. Bathsheba is not named as David's wife. She is the wife of Uriah. God not only redeemed the sin for the lineage of the promise that David would have an heir, but he also redeemed Uriah in his name that was shattered by David's sin. God can redeem anything. God can flip anything on his head. Where there was faithlessness and death, now we see in this genealogy that there is faithfulness and life everlasting. Where there was deceit and destruction, there is is now truth, and all things are being made new. God redeems anything, church. Nothing is beyond the scope of his salvation. This is the consequence of grace. And another consequence... When Satan tempts me to despair, is now, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. This is the consequence of grace. You who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, have you ever been seemingly out of nowhere? Have you ever been slammed with guilt over your past sins? Or sneakily reminded of your past wrongdoings just out of nowhere and then flooded with feeling like a total failure? and unworthy to even approach God in prayer or worship? Do you, my fellow Christians, feel, ever feel so unlovable that you fear for your state of your own salvation? No, just me? If you know what I'm talking about with this kind of guilt that just sneaks in an attack from the enemy or your own heart, I want to remind you of the truth, which is the consequence of grace. Jesus died once and for all, for all of your sin. For all of my sin. The late Pastor Tim Keller once said, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So when the enemy tries to immobilize you from rightfully approaching the throne boldly, use Scripture as your shield and sword and remember 1 John 3.20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God... Is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Spurgeon rightly said that sometimes our hearts condemn us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a higher court, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This is to say that when we feel this aforementioned guilt that sneaks into us, it's either a self condemnation or a condemnation from the enemy. Remember that God is greater than either our hearts or the enemy. And what, whatever is brought before our hearts, God is bigger than that. God knows so much more. The enemy knows what you did, but, God, but the enemy does not know you like God knows you. God knows all of us. God knows everything. And knowing us wholly, all of us, he still loves us. He has already cast his judgment on you. There's no reason to bring up a charge. He has already cast his judgment on you, and that judgment is love, mercy, grace. Jesus himself said that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the Lord that the world would come but through him might be saved. And remember, what Christ has done cannot be undone. Nothing can separate us from God. In Christ we are made one with him. We are children of the God most high. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're about to sing one of my favorite hymns. It's got one of my favorite verses. I mentioned earlier, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I don't know where you stand this morning. Like David, in any given moment of his life, you could be on a mountaintop. You could be in the mundane of life. Or you could be in deep grief over your own sin. Or you could be oblivious to the sin that is before you. There is a constant and all of it in the roller coaster. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Do you all know that hymn? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater in all our sin.